If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this conversation is Nilifer Merchant. Nilifer is one of the world's top business and management thinkers and also is one of my new favorite human beings. As an operator, she was involved with the launch of over 100 technology products that collectively have generated more than 18 billion, yes, that's with a B, 18 billion dollars, and has since gone on to write three books, share her ideas in boardrooms and with audiences globally, as well as teach at Stanford, Santa Clara University, and Yale. In this conversation, the part of her work that we go deep on is the concept of onlyness, which is that spot in the world that only you stand in. It's a function of your distinct history, your experiences, as well as your visions and your hopes. We explore how to connect with the thread of purpose that only you can see, how to create belonging first with yourself and then with others, and by doing so, to make your unique contribution to the world. I was thrilled to discover that Nilifer and I share a belief in the power of including all people's potential, that if we could benefit from the ideas and the potential in every person, then there is no problem that we could not solve. This is a conversation about how to connect with your onlyness and bring it into the world to make the contribution that only you can make. So with all of that, I am very excited to bring you Nilifer Merchant. Nilifer, thanks for being here. I'm so excited to spend time with you today. How are you today? Awesome. Thanks for asking. Awesome. Well, this is going to be a really fun conversation. And I just wanted to first off just express my gratitude and my appreciation to you for your work. Um, I feel like... I am personally encountering your work, uh, particularly the, the topic we'll spend most of today on in terms of onlyness, um, at what just seems to be like the perfect moment, right? It's like it couldn't mm-hmm. have come at a better time in, in my own journey. And um, I, I know we'll spend a lot of time on that today, but I just want to first off say like it, it's the, the for at least for me as one person, it's the perfect thing at the perfect time. So I'm just really mm-hmm. excited to spend some time with you today. Awesome. Yeah. That and, already makes you know, me happy. There we go. Done. Checklist done. Off okay. Day. Done. Yeah. That is efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and one thing that just so stood out to me as I was, uh, you know, getting ready for this conversation and thinking about what I'd love to talk with you about is, is just somewhere where you and I really connect is this shared belief that if we could really just, if we could just access everyone's ideas and potentials, like there's nothing we couldn't solve. There's, there's nothing we couldn't do. And, um, I thought a fun place to start would be, I, I wanted to, I know you're an etymology fan. And I was hoping you could, maybe a starting point would be, talk to us about the idea of singular, but not separate. Mm, Yeah, singular, but not separate. You know, one of the things that we often do is we think about, like when you think about yourself, you know, Andrew, you think about the isolated you and not how you fit into a web, a family, a network of people, a network, not in the networking way, but network of humans. And so we think about ourselves in this sort of private way and not in this social way. Mm. And, you know, so you are part of both the linear family in which you were born. You're part of work groups, right? That you're trying to create value with. Uh, you're part of the city that you belong to. You're part of the passion groups of people who are doing podcasting. You are part of many things and yet you are distinctly yourself. And so figuring out, what that looks like so that you get to be you and you are always yours and recognizing there is this fluid dance that's happening where we are intertwined at all times. 
right? So it's the, it's the drop in the ocean. It's the, um, it's the ways in which we're just part of a larger thing. And we sometimes just can't see that. And it makes us feel so lonely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me, um, I, 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 please correct me if I'm getting this person's name wrong. I, I think his name is Andre Del Beck. Yes. Um, who sort of pioneered the idea of spirituality, sort of a, a, a spirituality in business, which is a concept that I absolutely love and I'm so thrilled to dive deeper into. But I think I, I've heard you talk about that. He said to you something like, you're pointing to a, a secular version of basically the deepest spiritual insight that there is. It's true. It's true. He did say that. So Andre was a professor of mine at Santa Clara University. And uh, I took a course with him called Spirituality and Business, which you just pointed out, and uh, and then co-taught that course with him over the years. Um, he's since passed away. Yeah, it was a really good learning experience. And his role in inviting me into the class, you know, when he was saying, please join us, he was saying, you're an operator. And these people who are in the room are operators. And he goes, I'm just an academic. So if you can talk about it from your perspective, um, it will it will bring it to life in a different way. And so slowly but surely, I think it was his way of enrolling me deeper into the work anyway. And um, uh, and so as I... Clever, would, Andre. Right? Smart teacher. Um, I will hook you in by making you do the work. And um, uh, Andre um, had, of course, then taught me about this notion about how do you even understand who you are in relationship to the world? I mean, he basically did a series of coursework that got you to start thinking about that question. And then later Mm -hmm. on, when I coined this term of onlyness and was really trying to say, what is that distinct thing that only you bring? He was like, oh, you're finding the language that will help this idea spread that we can all see each other as the light of God. He would use that language. And what I'm saying is each of us has value to add. They're the same, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yet for those of us who might get stuck because maybe we were raised in a particularly difficult religion or we don't understand, you know, our version of God or whatever, it's just it, things can get in the way. But if you can just say, gosh, each of us has value. And as long as you can light that up, you can figure out, you know, how to add that capacity in the world. That's that's the that's the that's the universal truth. Yeah. Yeah. That idea that we all have that spark within us. And, and similarly that it's the, the other way I've heard it said is that it's recognizing that same light in another. And so it's, it's, it's that interconnection of, you know, it's like, yes, we all have our sort of individuation of it, but it's underneath. It's the same thing. Thank you. And thank you for pointing that out because sometimes people hear onlyness and they love the concept when it applies to them. Like I'm now special. You can almost see them like <laughs> get the feathers go and a thing like I'm so special and they want to strut around. I'm like, actually, you are special in the way that each of us is special. And until you can recognize that the person you're sitting across from has value to add to equal to yours, different than yours, mind you. Right. But not different in the way we sometimes dismiss people each distinctly our own. Then you start to think about. How do you contribute what you contribute and welcome that dance of other people contributing with you? Why do you think that's hard for people? Well, in American society, especially, we are um, conditioned right from early on of um, bootstrap this, Sid. Uh, show some <laughs> grit and you should be able to do it on your own. We send a lot of messages to people that are actually contrary to the human condition um, because human beings are social beings. We're uh, shaped by each other, uh, with each other. We have been since the beginning of time. And so it defies logic. And yet 
uh, from the early days of Western Civ, there's been this sort of rational mind and economic self-interest. And you can see all the air quotes even without mm-hmm. seeing me, right? Um, mm-hmm. Are all constructs that were largely defined by white men to say, here's how awesome I am and here's how rational I can think and here's how I can delineate my value, right? And at the same time, uh, they didn't want to recognize the value of, let's say, the black person in the in their own cotton fields, right? And so that's the dichotomy is that they liked the separation because it created a hierarchy and it benefited them. And then unfortunately, a bunch of us have been taught by that logic and then we have to un- mm. unlearn it in order for us to understand that we are all absolutely connected. Our fates are linked and not ranked. Really quick, let's lay a conceptual foundation for anyone who hasn't had the benefit of already encountering your work. So what is onlyness and why do we need this new word? Yeah, onlyness. Each of us stands in a spot in the world, only one stands in. And from that spot, from your history and experience, as well as your visions and hopes, you contribute that which you can. So it is centering correctly on the source of all ideas. And the reason we needed the word is um, we didn't have language that centered correctly, mm. right? So if I say um, you're special, um, well, it's not, then it creates a hierarchical model. If I say you're unique, um, we, unique is a relative word, unique to what? Uh, if I say you're the only one, quote unquote, in the room, it centers the room instead of centering the person and specifically the source of that person's capacity to add value. And we don't, we didn't have a language, mm. right? Even when we say, see my humanity, well, that's what a hundred percent of the people uh, have in the world. So it's not, it's not specific, it's general. Mm-hmm. And so instead of telescoping out to see that, which I can add, I wanted to telescope in to the very source of where all value creation starts. Value creation starts with a person and that perspective they have. And then from that place of uniting with other people, we get to shape an idea, we get to spark an idea, we get to scale an idea. So ideas are how those things get connected up, but it starts because of onlyness and that perspective that one person, singular person has. Perfect. Thank you. And I think the, the what you said to me in one of our prior conversations was that what's distinct about this idea relative to many of the ideas I've already encountered, whether in books or on the show or whatever, is that it's sort of moving, I think to put it in slightly different language, it's moving from a, um, a comparative to a contributive mindset and or maybe moving exactly. from from a place of relativism to whatever the opposite of relativism is <laughs> to sort of like right. a, a singular a singular place that has no it has no need for comparison exactly that's exactly right great contributive so it gets you when you understand it then what you can say is what is the only i can bring and you stop looking at other people and saying, well, that person over there is writing three books and that person over there has a podcast and that person over there is rich, you know, and you're like, shut like, stop looking outside yourself yeah. to go to then go, what is it I can add value on? And that's, that's, that's the stuff that requires some self-awareness. First of all, it requires a celebration of everything that you bring, even if it's quirky and odd and doesn't match anyone else's. Right. And, and then to go, okay, from that perspective, like I, I, I'll tell you a little funny little side story that I'm so amused by that um, is of the day. So I started a column relatively recently and it's on um, Substack and 
we're probably like six columns in, like it's early days of writing a column uh, on this topic about taking onlyness at work. And I'm answering readers' questions and I'm basically applying onlyness mm. in the process. Cool. And here's what I'm finding really amusing. I'm finding all my headlines are 1980s um, songs. <laughs> they're, they're like the clash They're you know, so, and so yesterday I found another one and it was the song true. Um, you, so I could hum it for you, but, um, but I have a terrible voice and I would not do that to your poor listener. So, uh, true, true by, uh we'll wait to go to the show notes. The, the song's true by which, which artist? Um, what is it? It's, um, starts with an S and it's like, um, Oh my gosh, why can't I remember it this morning? Because yesterday I totally remembered it. Is it span, span, Spandau Ballet? Spandau Ballet, thank you. That's exactly I just, it. I just and, went Googling. Um, <laughs> there we go. Um, Spandau Ballet. And I was listening to it last night, and the, and the theme of the piece, the piece was about how do you be true to your own voice? And so I just was like, as soon as I was sitting here thinking, what is this song that captures that notion? Um, I came up with that song. And so the reason I'm going along this little little narrow story about my own life is I love 80s songs because I was born and in, in, in such an era that 80s was my sort of definitive music era, right? And so I could basically be like, yeah, I'm not going to do the 80s song because it might date me. But instead, I'm like, I'm all in because it is such a quirk of mine that when I think of something, I think of a song. Mm. And so the last week's, by the way, was the Urban Cowboy song, um, <laughs> looking for love in all the wrong places. And so I ended up changing out just one word and said, looking for praise in all the wrong places. But to me, like the melodies in my head when I'm writing. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm integrating that. And where that pays off is not clear. But what I have learned, so, so what I'm trying to say is, it's not about like, gosh, will anybody like my 80s reference song? You know, like if I sat there and thought that, then I might just dismiss it. But instead what I'm saying is, gosh, that's so true to my writing experience and how I'm thinking about it. And so why not add the video link? Why not make it more explicit that, by the way, this song that was about somebody wanting to write something really meaningful and therefore owning their own voice in the process really captured me, right? And so my idiosyncrasy shows up in the work and therefore makes it so much more true to my own voice. Yep. And so it's interesting, right, that I'm writing about voice and then I'm like going, oh, is it important for me to reference an 80s song that I was saying in my head? And yes, yes, the answer is yes. Yes, do it. <laughs> right? See how that is? And and so, so some people could be like, well, that's unimportant, but it's it's relevant to me. And the more we end up adding that thing that only we can add, we end up Getting to claim ourselves, however, somebody could like judge me and be like, well, that means she's like 52 years old or whatever, right? They could actually judge me for that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm 52 years old, which means also I've gone around the barn a bunch of times and therefore have some wisdom to offer on things, right? So it's just, it's two sides of the same coin and you could view it as a negative or a positive. And what I'm saying is if it's all yours, just own it all. Yeah. Dark and light. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So let's let's zoom in for a little bit here on on the topic of loneliness and and your work. So to grossly oversimplify a book, everyone really should read. And we're going to link to this the show notes. And for God's sake, listener, go buy this damn book. Um, you know, you kind of outline in the book a, a three part process, right? Sort of first is is claiming your loneliness and finding that thread that that is what is truly and only yours. Um, and then second is talking about belonging and finding to whom do you belong. And then third is sort of gaining traction and taking that idea out into the world. I specifically want to zoom in more on parts one and two of that today. Um, okay. Just based on the conversations that I've had with listeners, I think that's where, where what will be most helpful to them. So um, 
let's let's go uh, let's go in that order. Let's start with finding the thread, and then let's talk a lot about belonging because I know going back to that idea of the social constructs that that's huge and, and really a core insight of your work. So, um, let's talk about this. It seems so simple, and yet. <laughs> And yet, it need the world needed your work. It needed your voice to put this into it. So, why are we getting this wrong? Why? Why? Where are people tripping up? Because I think everyone, we all have this innate need to do this thing, to find that thing that is only ours, and to express it in the world. So, why is this so hard? And how are we screwing this up? Well, um, just think about some books that you've read in recent times, some more popular books, and. Um, and we could take a few, right? Just as and I'm not picking on any of them when I'm picking them, but I'm going to just kind of point out what most of us are inculcated on and they're indoctrinated on. And then to hear why this idea of holiness is, is, is harder to hear, mm. right? It's not that it's, it's uh, that they, they, they hear it and they go, yeah, that doesn't make as much sense as the other 99 points of data people have told me. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, mm, yeah, I'll toss this little outlier out. And so here's what we told we're told that you should have grit and that in spite of what other people say, you should just push on through the Nike strategy, right? Just (laughs) Just do it. Just do it. Um, Then we're told that if you have an original voice, it will just manifest without regard for, by the way, most of us who face bias, women, people of color. So well over 50% of the population, if you can write something on originality without acknowledging the role of bias, then you're bullshitting a lot of people, right? Um, what's another one? Uh, the, the most, I mean, we could just go through the collection of works. Oh, badass. Badass is a really good one. Uh, the badassery one, which is just overcome your doubt mm-hmm. as if you somehow it's just a mental strength of will issue that you have not done what you needed to do. Right. And what I'm coming along and saying is human beings are social beings. We do not function independent of other people. We are always interlinked and interdependent. And so if the people around us say things to us that box us into a small box, we might crawl out of that box, but we're also shaped by that box. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying the the strategy is to figure out to whom do you belong so you can actually share that early idea into a context where that idea even has a chance to be heard, right? And Andrew, you'll recognize that you've probably sat at some brunch or, you know, um, across beer with friends and and uh, shared some cra- crazy, quote unquote, crazy idea mm-hmm. of yours. Maybe it was this podcast. Maybe it was something else, right? And that group of people kind of looked at you like, hmm, no, mm, mm, no, yep. mm, no, right? And you've been across a different group of people. It's like, I totally see why you're passionate. You know, maybe don't do this, but do that. Make sure you take this other friend's advice into consideration. And let me see how I can help you, right? Like those two are two opposite approaches. Well, context changed, therefore, what you'll do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, it could be the first time you get sort of naysayed, you could just go find the other group. But the challenge is if you don't have the other group, you'll think you're the crazy one. Mm-hmm. And really, it's that you might be offering something into the world that is so new that that particular group that you're presenting it to and think about all the work contexts in which most of us operate. We're in context where like most of the time people's first response is, well, we already tried that. We tried it 10 years ago in a completely different context, but we're going to dismiss you because you don't sound like the guy who always talks loudest mm-hmm, over here, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the big shift is to go, 
You can't do it by yourself. <laughs> and you don't want to do it by yourself. You want to know who to lean on and be soft with. You want to know how to do a dialogue so your idea gets better. You want to know that you can trust the other person so that when you start actually building out that idea, you can count on them and what position play on field. Those are things you need. It's not like a nice to have thing. It's what you need in order for that idea to actually become real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the way I, you're saying, like what you're speaking to is the idea that social constructs are what create possibility, right? It's that idea of uh, having having even the chance to give the idea a voice and have it be heard and not dismissed. That in and of, of itself is a super powerful and important step that we over, that I think what you're saying is, is widely overlooked in, you know, whether it's grit or lean in or, you know, fill in your, fill in your popular book here. Um, that we are like, we live in a, like, most of our world is defined by, by agreement. It's like, it's, it's a reality only because we agree it's that way. Like law, that's what law is. That's right. Um, it's it's right. an agreement that's reality. Right. So I, I think that's so, such an interesting point that we, everything we're doing is in this marketplace of ideas and we literally can't do that alone. Marketplaces don't exist when there's just one. And we do ourselves a disservice, right? And so when Lean In first came out, which is now five or six years, I remember I was part of a listserv of women entrepreneurs, executives, et cetera. And it was about 500 people. And I remember saying, um, does this not, this makes no sense to me. Like the whole, like, go ask for more pay, all the data that I know, and I'm pretty well read, like I'm one of those research hounds, right? So, so I was like, all the data I know says you're going to be penalized if you ask. So anybody else have this question? And I got shut down pretty hard. Mm. Like, no, 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 no. We're going to support this book because we support this feminist writer. And I was like, hmm, doesn't jive with me, right? And 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 I remember going, am I the crazy one in the group? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, now, six years later, most of the things that were put forward in that book have been debunked. And of course, sure, you know, we, people can now see really clearly that if Cheryl had wanted to create pay equity, all she had to do was turn to the board on which she sits, <laughs> and create pay equity. And mm-hmm. if pay equity happened at Facebook, it would happen throughout the rest of tech, right? So mm-hmm. she could have done the actual change, but instead what she chose to do is say, go jump against this electric fence wall and mm-hmm. enjoy yourself. And I will make money off of you doing that because I get to sell a book, right? Mm-hmm. So we're selling the, taking a systemic problem and making it personal mm-hmm. so that we can sell the fact that you can try harder and instead of actually just fixing the problem, and it's just a really painful thing for me to watch because um, we need to understand that how we create change is a combination of both individual voice and context into which that voice exists. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I think the way you phrased it last time we spoke was we, we sort of framed out this idea of like a two by two. It was almost this yeah. like two by two of, I believe it was belong uh, two by two exploring kind of the tensions and the dynamics between belonging and voice. Tell me about that two by two. Yeah. So let's do the two by two. So this is what onlyness is built on. So what we just finished doing was sort of pointing out how a bunch of different ideas ask you to do all the stuff by yourself. And they're basically telling you how to have high voice, how to go from not believing in yourself to believing in yourself from, um, thinking that maybe because like your parents told you, you didn't know anything that you do know something, right? That all that. So they're asking you to go from low voice to high voice. And what I'm doing is adding one more dimension. So in the two by two, I say it's both voice 
and belonging. And let's just kind of take it apart so that we can visualize it, right? So if you have low voice and low belonging, so you'd be in the lower left quadrant, you'd basically be feel small yourself, like you'd be like, oh, I don't really count. And the world in which you exist would say, yeah, you don't really count, right? So mm-hmm. you would have a job as a paint uh, maker at one of those like uh, companies where you show up, somebody else gives you a little paint swab, you mix the paint, you put it in a thing, the shaker, you hand it to the person and your job, you'd, you'd smoke marijuana all day long because your job would suck, right? And <laughs> they basically told you you're relatively inconsequential. You have no decisions and creativity to make. And you've, ta- you've put yourself in that position where that's the, you know, so you feel small and inadequate. And in work language, we would say that person's highly disengaged. Right. Okay. So lower, yep. we kind of know that box is where no one wants to live yet. By the way, 70% of jobs live there. It's a sucky place. Yep. All right. So let's it's go a to sucky, high, sucky place. Sucky place. Um, so high voice, but low belonging says that what matters is you and you alone. And so you are going to try to persevere in spite of everything. So you will have a brilliant idea. You will make it all about you. You will flame out on that idea in about two or three years because you've not enrolled anyone else in that idea. You've not figured out how to build momentum yet. You think it's all about you and how smart you are and how hard you work. Mm. Every entrepreneur who's flamed out after two or three years is basically living this thing where they think it is about their vision, quote unquote, and not about whether or not that thing is shared by many people. So I call it the lonely only. And because it is about you owning that thing that only you have, but you're not actually owning it in some context that allows other people to share with it, right? Okay, so you're all alone. So it's high voice, low belonging. Then go to uh, low voice, high belonging. So um, you belong. Yay. Most of us think that we have to give up ourselves in order to belong. But you belong like you're a member of the Borg. Right. So if you remember the, <laughs> the Star yeah. Trek metaphor, right? It's like everyone's the same. It's uh, in the Star Wars metaphor, it would be all the, the, you know, people in the white suits or black suits or whatever. Right. Well, yeah. All the, all yeah. the stormtroopers, all the stormtroopers. Exactly. And so they belong. That's what's so beautiful about the last part of that story where the, one of the stormtroopers is like, I have an identity. I could have a voice outside of being a stormtrooper. Right. It's, but, <laughs> but until then. He belonged as a unit and he felt so good about the fact that he belonged, right? And so some of us feel like we're not allowed to both have a voice and belong. We think that tension is one or the other. And so we give up ourselves. That's why we take jobs where we're like, sure, we'll do whatever you ask so that I can work. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's only when you have the two together, when you have high voice and high belonging, where you get to show up fully alive and bring what only you have to offer. And you get to join with other people so that that thing that you're working on together is owned and you start to run balls down the field because you don't have to like check in. You don't go, hey, Andrew, I need to tell you what to do because Andrew knows what the touchdown looks like, right? And if I, or or the, the field goal or whatever. And so we start playing really differently with each other because I can bring what game I have and you can bring what game you have and we get to play. Yeah. So high voice, high belonging is when things start to really create scale and impact. And that's why onlyness. And so in that box, I'm describing what agency is, voice and belonging combined agency. 
agency is really falsely described as personal agency, air quotes again, Uh, which is so funny to me because uh, what we've just finished describing as we describe agency is that it is a social construct, right? So I find that very funny that the naming convention says personal agency. But what they're really trying to get to is what is your inherent capacity to add value? And that is what onlyness is. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I love everything you just said, and I'm just I, if I nodded harder, my head would probably <laughs> fall off. Um, I would hurt. I would literally hurt my neck. Uh, so I love what you just said, and it what really jumps out to me that like what you just said resonates strongly. And and but on an intellectual level, what change? What how that changes the way I view things? I think is that voice is the pathway to belonging, as opposed to the block to it. That is, am I understanding that right? It's both at the same time. So, you know, you're running two vectors at the same time, right? So like that, that example I said over brunch, where I said, you show up to that brunch and that group of people who really don't get you, um, and you kind of wonder what the hell you're even doing there at the end of the brunch, um, that group uh, is going to negate you. And uh, I'll just tell you, you know, just how many of us go to work and no one else around us looks like us, feels like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I've i been thinking a lot this week um, because of the situation that happened in Central Park and the loss that we just had in Minnesota. Um, how many people of color, especially black people, are going into work and feeling just torn apart on the inside? And they may not even be acknowledged at work for mm. essentially a, a social pain that is affecting, you know, 12% of a population. And if they work in a setting that is not aware enough, not paying attention, not, not inclusive, they're going to feel so lonely. And they mm-hmm. might even, they might even be a little bit more snippish than normal. And they might be a little more, you know, all these things. And people will might even like look at them and go, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Right. And yet that same person in a setting where, people get it, will go, oh my God, you must be hurting. And all of a sudden, we'll open up to each other, right? And that's the shift of context. So I cannot be fully myself. I will be interpreted through the lens of a group if I belong to the wrong group. And I could give you example after example, and and I'm sure the next question will probably lead to another example. <laughs> no, I, pre- I really, I so appreciate you you sharing that. Listening to you, I'm reminded of Brene Brown and her point that, um, hopefully, I don't butcher this too badly, but that belonging starts with belonging to oneself. Yeah, and it's only through that that we find the others to whom we belong. Because first we belong to ourselves, and then we then from there it's it's that from there we discover who else we belong to. Yeah, and I I think it's uh, the way I say it is uh, only as we. Um, are valued, can we add value? And mm. uh, and that starts with oneself. So it's interesting to to see the parallel of Brené's work, whom I know and adore her work. She's just she's such a gift. Um, uh, but those are the same, right? They're the the same truth. And most mm-hmm. of us don't know how to value that which only we bring. Like I have a entrepreneur that I've been working with one on one doing a consultation. And she's really got a brilliantly new idea she wants to work on. And yet what she's struggling with is, well, she doesn't know how to earn money off it yet. Hmm. And the key word there is yet. So here's what she says to herself. She says, I have this brilliant idea, but since I can't figure out how to monetize that, I can't chase the idea. 
And I'm like, well, could you maybe like develop the idea long enough so somebody else can even see it so that it could then be valued, right? What you're doing Mm -hmm. is giving up on yourself before anyone else even has a chance to vote. You have given up on yourself, your own idea. And I go, and then you're asking other people, by the way, to validate you for something you have yet to even show up to because you won't even show up to yourself. (laughs) And, And it's a circular loop that a bunch of people do. And what I'm trying to teach her so far, not working, but, um, is that value creation and value capture are not the same thing. And Mm -hmm. if we understand what is it we can distinctly add value to and just start working on that, no one Mm -hmm. else can go, oh my gosh, Andrew, you are so gifted as a listener. You know what? You're Mm -hmm. really great at doing a podcast because you like learning new ideas and you like figuring out how to engage those ideas, right? So, So until you showed up to it, and, and are clearly demonstrating in this conversation until you start doing it, no one else can maybe see it that, oh my gosh, that's what you're good at. And that is true for all of us. We give up on ourselves long before other people even have a chance to choose us. Yeah. It reminds me, talk to me a little bit about the, um, I think you called it the zero to 30% phase of an idea. Yeah. Right. So the early phase of a project um, is always this. So all ideas show up as nascent fledgling little things. So it's almost like a baby, right? That shows up basically ready to die almost the minute it's born kind of thing. Babies are so, that's why, <laughs> that's why everybody who has a child is so freaked out, right? Cause it's like the least resilient thing. If you think about it, right? Like it needs food every couple hours, blah, blah, blah. And you're like losing yeah. your mind because you don't know what this little thing needs. Um, cause it can't signal very clearly. So it's just such a desperate time. Well, ideas are kind of the same thing in that early, early stage. They show up as these fledgling things. And so what happens to it in those early days really matters. The person who says, oh, I totally see how your idea relates to Brene's. And maybe next time Brene could endorse your work and then other people could see the linkage better, right? That, that Then all of a sudden it starts to grow momentum because someone would go to Brene and go, Brene, do you see this other work and this woman of color who's working right alongside you and these two bodies of work could really play? Then it would grow. But the other, but somebody could just as easily say, it's like, oh, Nilifer, who knows her? Brene's so well known. Mm. Oh, never going to get those two things together. Right. And so the, the response to it, the nurturing of it, the feeding of it, the tendering of it is all about community. Mm. And so for those of us who are in settings, I, I think, um, it, it sounds like you've listened to a lot of work I've shared, but one of the stories I sometimes share from stage is this experience that happened to me. It's now probably been five or six years. And I had been working on what was second book. So 2012, this would have been. I was working on a book with Harvard. And, um, uh, I, you know, the basic idea was pretty solid and, and stuff. And I was basically making the argument that social, as it was seen right then, was really viewed as a media asset. Like, oh, social can be used for marketing. And I was saying, actually, social could be used for the entire part of the value creation cycle that you could have customers co-create with you. You could have... You know, just this, this beautiful interlinkage so that there is no perimeter between a company and the marketplace. And this false dichotomy that we have had for a long time of we'll be competitive and strong and build ourselves up and then we'll tell you what we're going to market is just, you know, so antiquated. So I was working on that idea and I had gone to somebody who's really good at naming stuff and said, you know, and with his permission, it said, would you mind if I, if I asked your advice on this? Because um, I think you're going to, first of all, get it. And you might be able to offer me back a reflection of what it is I'm saying so I can tighten this message. And uh, and this is what he said to me. 
as a brown woman, your chances of being seen in the world are next to nothing. Because Mm. in order for you to be seen, yeah, right. Um, Because in order for you to be seen, you'd have to be edgier to stand out from the crowd. But if you're edgy, all the people in the business world who need to adopt your idea won't. So, and I totally remember where we were standing because we were in an old church building. And so he looks up at like these angels and archangels that are depicted in the stained glass. And so I think he's going to come back around and like circle and be like, so here's the way we're going to get through that challenge, right? Like he, instead he says, so yeah, you're never going to get heard in the world. Wow. And this is someone I trusted. This is someone who many people would consider us contemporaries and stuff, right? So I trusted him enough to ask him this difficult question and to seek him out and to sit down with him. And I remember sharing this story then with my editor at the time was Sarah Green at Harvard Business Review. And she was like, hmm. And then I shared it with Lisa Gansky, who did all the beautiful work in the early days of the sharing economy stuff. And she went, hmm. And this went on for months to the point where I was like, no one has told me it's it's wrong, even though it really doesn't feel right. Um, and so I think he's actually trying to help me. I think actually I am being too bold or wild or crazy or whatever to think that my ideas actually matter. All these people, every single person in the circle has not challenged the question. This has not challenged the premise of the question. They basically said, mm, yeah, I heard what he said. Mm, okay. And so for three months, four months, I had fully internalized it. Like, all right, well, if I can't, mm. then maybe I can help the next generation. And I had fully toggled over. Like now it was a truth. His truth had become my truth. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, if I can't do it for me, maybe I can do it for the next generation. And I mentor quite a few, uh, you know, wonderful people. One of the groups that I spent a lot of time mentoring was the Ted Fellows, who are really big change agent type folks. And I was talking to someone about why I'm going to double down on that mentoring work that I was doing because I could help them design business models and so on. And I could basically get this next generation through. And somebody overheard me saying that. So standing like 10 feet away, but overhearing me say, I'm not going to make it through the wall, but I'm going to help the next group make it through the wall. And she came over and she knocked on my shoulder and she's like, what did you just say? Tell me that story again. And I repeated the story as I had repeated it for, to Sarah Green and to Lisa Gansky and all sorts of other people. And she goes, in case no one's told you, that story's bullshit. And I remember when she said bullshit, I was like, oh, like I can't believe she just said that. <laughs> right? I totally had this like, oh, because like I was like, she was challenging the premise of the question. And up to that point, every other person for four months, so mind you, I was in so much pain for four mm. months, and every person who was close to me sat there and went, hmm, must be true if he said it. Hmm. And that's how context changes someone's capacity to contribute, right? Which is why I say, here was someone who technically had high voice, right? Like, if in the degree that I had a book being developed at Harvard, you would think, I didn't need to sit there and justify this. But mm-hmm. then being told to be smaller. Step it back. Mm. And that's where we then get to say to each other, uh, tap on each other's shoulder and say, um, that is not true. That is not true. It's like we, it's almost like we're asleep and we need, we need people to wake us up sometimes. 
Well, context, right? We're social beings. We we understand who we are. Like, think about how children learn. They learn who they are based on what their parents teach them. And sometimes we have to unlearn some shit, right? Because we leave our parents not necessarily yep. as healthy as we need to be. And so and and all of that. But we learn human beings have been amazing. Like we we don't reinvent the wheel. Quite literally, we don't reinvent the wheel because somebody comes along and says, Oh, by the way, we already invented that. That's got covered. You can move on. You can invent the, you know, next big thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're great at teaching each other what we already know. Social context is how we do that. I'm reminded of James Altucher and his whole thing about like, choose yourself, right? Like you got to, you got to vote on you first in order to go on that, go on that ride. Basically. Right. But, but if, but if you're, so this is where the zero to 30 really matters. You also got to choose who you tr- like put in that inner circle of people, right? Because if you're mm-hmm. surrounded yep. by people, like I thought that guy was my friend, right? And yeah. If they're going to tear you down, then nothing's going to make it to 30, even make right. it to 30%. Exactly. You just got it over the finish line. Thank you. And thanks for that collaborative work. Uh, that's it. So the thing is, for a lot of us, and I'm using us in this really broad sense for a second, if we're surrounded by people who say, no, 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 you don't fit into the world the way we expect it to, then we have to do additional work, right? So... James is really lucky in that most of the world in publishing, for example, where he's so successful, looks a lot like him. So when he shows up, they're like, oh, gotcha. I totally see who you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I show up and they're like, huh, really? Mm-hmm. Right. So I have to do double the work that James does in picking myself. I get to pick myself and I have to build a construct in communities that will help me pick myself. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's the duality that, um, that we got to learn to live with, which is why both parts matter. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes with that idea. I've heard you talk about it, that, that, um, power and status are self-reinforcing loops, right? And it's, it's not, and not in the good way. Yeah. Right. So the data says that what happens is, um, those who have power and status get hurt. And given that, context to be like, sure, James, you've done a stock market thing. Cool. Like we totally want to see a book from you. Right. And someone like me who has um, been behind the scenes on a bunch of tech company launches was behind the scenes, not in front and helping those executives of Nokia make a decision. Right. But Nokia guy gets a book deal and I don't because I was behind the scenes. So I have to work twice as hard then to show the capacity. And, and that's just important for us to realize when there's, you know, I'm talking to every woman, uh, every person of color. So that's at least 70% of a population. I'm not talking to a minor group. And yet most of the messaging that we say is pick yourself. And I'm like, yeah. And if you're in this other 70% crowd, recognize that power and status act as reinforcing loops, which means that we have to build our own loop early on in order for us to be able to succeed. Yeah. And, and that's something that I hope you know, everyone listening to this really takes on. I mean, I, and I say this as a, someone who's had an incredible privilege in my life. You know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white male at a time when that's a, when it's a really good time in history to be a white male for the entire time I've been alive. And it occurs to me, like one of the things I hope everyone listening to this takes away is, is this idea of the social construct, because as each of us understands that idea and our impact on the ability for other people to tap into and express their onlyness, we can start to shift that construct, right? You can, we can build companies that have a different construct. We can build groups, tribes, friendships, whatever. Um, and that's something that I hope people, uh, really get. And I, and I, it just occurred to me why I think one of the reasons why your work landed with me so much. I mean, and I say this again as a pretty, someone who's had a very privileged 
uh, life and everything. And I think part of the reason that I resonated with it so strongly is because even though that is true, simultaneously what's true that most people don't know when they look at me is that my earliest experiences of life was being the other. Because when I early, my earliest memories, I was, I was a little white kid in Africa. And so I didn't fit in. And so I actually remember viscerally what that feels like. And it just occurred to me that that's why your work landed so hard. So here's the thing, right? That's the real irony of originality is some people are seen as different air quotes and some people are seen as distinct. Some people are seen as, uh, you know, centered in their own story. And some people are seen as subjective. Like, you know, we only see the outer shell of who that person is. Right. And, um, and, and that's why otherness, which is what you're describing, is so harmful because then we don't get to include. And then when we do, man, not only does it like, is it the right thing to do, blah, 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 but it actually gets us everything we really want, which is better people to come co-create the world we want to live in, you know, better ideas that we can make money off of for investors or whatever. So there is, um, this construct will only help us to see the value of each person. And yeah. by the way, you're one of the things that, that you're probably, you could relate to also besides that experience in Africa is, you know, age is often a way in which we filter people too. So I've been using uh, race or gender mm. just because, you know, yeah. it's in my mind right now, but uh, millennials are often told, we often talk about that as a group of people like millennials want this and the rest of the work, what the, but mm-hmm. millennials are not a group. Like, do, do you know a millennial? No, you know, Andrew, Right. And so what is it? That, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, know, I know people. Right. Exactly. So like, so a beautiful talk by a woman named Leah George, who's a professor out of, I want to say, um, gosh, I'm sorry if I'm not remembering it, but I want to say it's out of Vancouver. Um, but we can Google that and insert that in. But Leah George did a, yeah, did a beautiful talk on, uh, we got to stop understanding um, people by age groups and start seeing and celebrating that which only they can. So she used the onlyness construct as a very specific way of how do you center correctly? And then when you center correctly and you stop viewing them as a category of people, you actually can see what that person has to offer. I've been thinking a lot recently about and spending a lot of time reading um, around sort of Buddhist thought. And one of the big fundamental truths in that in in that philosophical system is that of impermanence right everything changes how does this idea of onlyness evolve as we evolve exactly that's exactly you just answered it so as we evolve our understanding of onlyness evolves right it is that moment in time Mm. of where we are on that spot in the world only we stand so think about that that spot's always moving but it's like that little red carpet that goes Mm. with you (laughs) right I find that very freeing. And I think the reason I find that so freeing is because so much of the stuff I've read, and I think at this point I've read most of at least the popular stuff that's out there around call it purpose, call it, you know, your reason why vision, it's, you know, fill in, fill in the blank here. Um, it often presents or seems to frame the idea as one that is fixed and non evolving, right? It's like, no, you have, you know, quote, one purpose. In life, and maybe maybe there are some core fundamental intentions that we bring to everything we do, and those will never change. Like for you, I see you as someone who is, you know, give, especially given your personal story of not feeling seen in, in your family and the tension between being born in India and then coming to the states as a young child. You know, always you're you're probably always going to really care about um, seeing 
helping people see and be seen, see themselves and be seen by others for who they really are. Like, I don't think it's mm. ever going to change for you is my guess. But I think what you're saying in this idea of an evolving loneliness is the way in which that's expressed will always be evolving as you evolve. Right, right. And and that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it as our understanding of our own story grows, as our um, depth and fidelity of understanding of, of who we are and what we've then created, right? So people often talk about confidence and as if somehow you can just cloak it, right? Like fake it till you make it as a phrase that people use. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I have confidence about some things and not so much confidence about other things, right? Because it's based on what's my competency in that area? What do I know? What do I not know? What's my, what's the breadth and depth of experience I'm offering, right? So, uh, so I can be confident and lose that confidence almost instantly if the context changes because it, it's so, it's dependent, right? Like, what do I know about this group, like accountants in whatever city I'm going to speak at? I got to learn a lot more before I can go, oh, here's the hook point, right? Here's where I think I can build a bridge to this group. Mm-hmm. And so it's, we act as if somehow it is a static thing and the fake it till you make it just dawn it as a persona. I'm like, no, that's so ridiculously unhelpful um, because instead, because here's what you can do instead, right? Is If you can say, gosh, I'm presenting to this new group and I don't feel very confident. You could go, okay, well, what is it you need to know in order for you to know how to serve that group? And then you might make a list of questions. You might do some pre-interviews and you might talk to them more and you might even beta test an idea with a couple of the attendees and so on and so on. So by the time you get on that stage, you're like, oh, I know what's going to land. I know what will serve this group, right? Because you've done the work. But if you just say, mm-hmm. well, gosh, I should just fake it till I make it, you know? You're good at you're bullshitting yeah. your way through yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, not giving yourself the room to keep learning. There's a line I heard you say getting ready for this conversation. Um, I think you said intimacy means we're willing to be shaped by someone. Mm-hmm. And that just seems so like such a great way to summarize this, this idea of the, the shared context and that sort of uh, interface or overlap where the, where the inner and the, the internal, and the external come together. Yeah. Right. It's that soft spot. Um, I, and so who we let into that inner circle, uh, it, it helps, you know, we get bruised by them because they're close with them. And so we have to make sure that those people know that when they bruise us, they got to apologize and they got to, you know, make it right. And, all that stuff because we've let them into that soft spot. And um, so people who can't be trusted yeah. um, air quotes uh, in that case, right? Um, the people who can't be trusted are people who really shouldn't be in that inner circle. It's fine. Like you can be who you are, go for it, but you just can't be in my inner circle. You get to be out there in the world, just much further away from me. Um, so, that, uh, so that when I am <laughs> developing an idea, when I'm working on tough things, uh, I don't accidentally turn to you and have you shit on me, right? Or yeah, so, so it's like fine, you can totally exist, just not near me, somewhere further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the math of that equation, it looks very different for people in the inner circle versus acquaintances versus whatever. Exactly right, and that's exactly right. I think that's the piece we're trying to teach ourselves is who should be in that inner circle, including, by the way. Am I being consistently true to myself in this inner circle way? I think I want to I want to sort of start to shift gears here and, and close out with some rapid fire questions. Uh, short questions, answers can go anywhere anywhere they take us. 
So the first one is, um, you know, this book's been out for coming on three years now. And I'm curious, how has the idea evolved since then? Hmm. The idea has evolved um, in a couple of ways. One is I'm being more specific with people about this idea of voice and belonging and, and like the two by two kind of grid that you saw and you found. And so um, because I was using prose and as soon as I put it in a two by two, because it's not like it was a new idea to me, it was a hundred percent like in the text. But as soon as I put it in a two by two, people are like, I get it. I'm like, oh man, I should have done that sooner. Um, I usually make fun of the people who use two by twos, you know? So, um, uh, yeah, right. So, uh, but it turns out it's, it's such a big construct that you do need a, uh, a simple way of really understanding that. So that turns out to be quite useful. Another thing is to, to, to really do the, it's not this, it's that. So, uh, you know, years of being on stage and realizing what people were hearing when I said onlyness was, I'm special. <laughs> they were internalizing it like that and not, we're all special. And, and, um, and, uh, and I only got that feedback after I was like sitting backstage with people and people would be like, so you just finished telling me how special I am. And I was just like, oh, dude, you so didn't hear me, you know, kind of thing. And so I'm just learning to be more refined and kind of go against what's the American mindset of individualism that is taught. Um, you know, etymology of individual is that you are, it is the smallest measure of a human kind. Hmm. And so it's interesting that we, we talk about individualistic culture in America, but we don't understand that that means it's still the connected you. Mm -hmm. We act as if it's this isolated person instead of connected. Um, and that is the deep sadness of, um, you know, our common culture right now. Yeah, yeah, it goes all the way back to where we started, right? Of singular, it's singular, but it's not separate. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. I, I just, I love the things that I, I, I am also a budding etymology geek. And I just like, I, it's so cool when you start to dig into the history of words, you find out like oftentimes the, the colloquial meaning is not at all the original meaning. And you're like, oh, shit, we lost that one. Yeah, right. And I have, I actually kind of have fun wandering around. There's a, there's a book I have called The Origin of Words. And mm. I'll sometimes just flip open. Yeah, I bought it at some garage sale somewhere, you know, and I'll just flip it open and just be wandering around the, you know, like, oh, what's that, you know? And uh, the other day I Googled the phrase, what fresh hell is this? Um, which <laughs> Probably, by the way, told you what kind of day I was having. Um, yeah, sorry I, to laugh at that, like, but it just seemed funny. Right, <laughs> but, but, it was, but, it, but it told me a lot too. Like, oh, that's interesting that you just Google that because I was like, what does that mean exactly? What is the origin of that phrase? Because I kind of want to use it, but I don't want to use it if it's wrong, right? And mm -hmm. um, uh, so those are fun, uh, fun ways to kind of spend time. You know, going back to the idea that we're shaped by our contexts and, and by others, who or what has had a really big influence on how you show up? Hmm. Well, you actually did this earlier in the interview that Andre Delbeck, uh, mm. I took this course from this guy. And in fact, I took the course funny enough, uh, because the person I had just met this guy in the MBA program named Kurt Beckman and, uh, Kurt Beckman was telling me how he was taking this course and he was talking to me about it. And it sounded like a super easy A, like super easy. Cause how could you possibly grade spirituality? Right. So I was like, basically you're going to show up, you're going to write whatever bullshit you can make up in like an hour. And there's no way somebody could say to you that's wrong. Right. So I was like, Oh, this is the best class. And it turns out Andre ended up doing the reading in my, at our wedding. So Kurt Beckman and I end up getting married because we had such rich conversations from both of us taking this class on spirituality and business that I really got to know his heart. 
Mm, and wow. and we end up getting married and so on. And, and Andre ends up reading at our wedding, you know, doing a reading. So it's, it's funny. So that was one person in more uh, modern day. Um, let me just think like, here's another thinker, Amy Edmondson's work who writes about psychological safety. Uh, I've been so influenced by her work over many, many years. And I've now since gotten to know her and, and become, dare I say friends. And what's been lovely is, uh, when she said to me recently, she said, you know, my idea is 30 years old. And she mm-hmm. goes, so don't, don't give up on your idea because like it hasn't caught traction yet. Right. So she's been just so supportive, um, in that way of saying, I really believe in you and I believe in this mm-hmm. and just keep pushing your own thinking. Right. Um, so there's people like that who are encouraging, even if they're not in my direct inner circle. What is a small change you've made in recent memory that's had an outsized impact? Small change I've made in recent memory. Well, we're living in uh, COVID uh, times, and uh, I used to really enjoy the process of being on the road and meeting people backstage or, you know, all that. When you're signing a book signing, people whisper beautiful little stories in your ear about like something that's happened to them or whatever. And in being at home, I was just like, oh, I'm going to miss out on everything. You know, I'm going to miss out on all those moments where you really feel that connection and I did this thing, which I, I would never have done before, which is for the people who are newsletter subscribers, I just wrote them an open invitation and opened up my calendar, just created Calendly, you know, appointments and, uh, and said, anybody who wants to meet with me, no agenda, no whatever. Oh, cool. And other than one meeting out of the 20 some meetings, um, they were all just amazing. One was psycho, but, um, all just ridiculously amazing. And each person, like showed me their view of the world, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. shared their vignettes and what was going on and everything. And it created this connection in a way that I just felt so intertwined with people's lives, you know? And, um, and I thought, wow, how, why didn't I do that before? Right. And I think it's because I thought maybe it was a waste of time. I like, or I didn't want to like create an expectation. I don't know. There were all these other noises in my head. And I thought how simple an act it was to say, if, you want to connect, let's connect, no agenda, and let's just go from there. I hope more people do that. For anyone who's been engaged in this conversation and wants to start this work, if they haven't already, or if they're, you know, if they're saying, okay, Nilfer, I'm in, what do I do? What's step one? Well, um, first of all, I, I've been writing this Substack column. So it's called at work com. I think is the website. I'm writing this column that is really focus on application. And really what I'm trying to do is say, uh, what does it look like in the world when you're asking for someone's approval? What does it look like when you're thinking about taking that big job, but you're worried about the people you're working with or, you know, and I, and, and like one person said, can I really feel joy in my career if my parents don't get what I do? Mm. You know, d- different questions. And I'm, and, and I'm taking each one on just as it comes and and I sit with it and I ponder it and I think about like, what's the, what's the take that would be useful and also illustrative, you know, and it's, and I feel like the thing is the person asking the question is doing that step of what's the question. I have. And I, I'm really deeply influenced by Clay Christensen's um, legacy uh, business thinker from long ago, you know, has been just hugely influential. He was the one who came up with the idea of disruptive innovation and now has since passed, but leaves behind like 30 years body of work. And uh, one one of the things he taught me was this notion that until you have a good question, there's no place for an answer to come. 
Hmm. And so I love it when people show up with a question. I always encourage people to go, what is the question you have? And if you can refine the question, then all of a sudden an answer has a place to come. And if the question is like, and, and, and sometimes when you ask a question, then someone else goes, is that the right question? Right. But if we're unintentional about that, then we're seeking, but without realizing there's no space for it to go. So I would, I always say, um, identify the question you have. And then you can go seek an answer for it, right? Because you can go, oh, here's really what the next question is in my heart. Yeah. What's your question right now? Uh, I have a lot of questions about uh, this. Uh, I really believe there's a difference between value creation and value capture. And yet almost everybody I know links them so tightly together. And they think that if they can't earn money from it, it shouldn't be what they focus on. And all the research says it's about a seven-year gap between the time you start a brand new idea to the time your ability to monetize it. Mm. And that was research I did in the process of onlyness. And I'm trying to figure out how to, like, how to decode that piece for people, right? And so that's the big question in my mind because it seems to me that as long as we so tightly link them and we say, gosh, if I can't make money off this podcast, if I can't make money, then we shouldn't do it or we should bail or whatever. I, I'm like, wow, there's got to be a better model out there. And um, because I've designed business models all my life, I get that they're a secondary factor. Mm-hmm. You don't design the business model first and then go, oh, well, that succeeded or didn't succeed. No, no, these are two independent things. First, you design the value prop. Then you get to figure out what's the best business model behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's so obvious to me. And it's so unobvious to other people. So that's the question I sort of have in my mind is like, why is it so obvious to me and what am I, what assumptions am I making and what's the lie? So, so I've just been like, Hmm, I know something that I know would be useful, but I honest to God can't figure out like, why, like, how do I even decouple it in my own head? How did I start to think about, you know, so all that. So it's a big morass of stuff. That's a good question. And that's a fun one that to like, a, you can see a whole journey that that's going to spark. Um, one idea for you that just occurred to me as I'm, as I'm listening to you is maybe another way to consider it is that um, you don't have to capture the value in the same place you create the value. Right. I, I mean, that's so true. That, by the way, that is one of the deepest truths. So thank you for that reflection. That is a really deep truth that you just nailed on. I hope your readers get it. You don't have to capture value in the same place you create it. And right, like I, I write and think my main value creation is about an idea of onlyness and its application. I speak, I write in all these different ways in order for me to do it. I even now do consultations so people can figure out what is the application of onlyness for themselves in this really, um, like beautiful process I've designed and, uh, far undercharging for what it is I'm actually doing. And, uh, and, and what I, what I'm really focused on those, those are all ways in which I'm learning. The writing mm-hmm. is a way in which I'm learning about the idea. The speaking is a way in which I'm learning about the idea. I'm actually doing R and D every single time I'm doing a consultation. I'm actually sitting there listening for where are people stuck mm-hmm. and I'm doing R and D against the idea. And so my value creation is about the idea and all mm-hmm. the other stuff is just, I mean, I need to do it in order to eat and all that stuff. I get it, but that's not my metric. Mm-hmm. What's your metric? Um, engagement, right? So, uh, like, here's here's the thing. What will happen after we do we share this beautiful podcast is people will write to you, and you will forward some of those to me, and I will learn something, and and then that will teach me something more about. Did I say it the way I meant it? Did it land? 
what was the next logical question, right? So it feeds the R&D. And in fact, uh, I was telling you about that keynote I gave and th- that same group of people wanted me to do a 45 minute download, like talk, Zoom call in and talk at the audience for 45 minutes because that's what a lot of keynoters do. Mm. And I said, actually, I don't recommend that model because I said what would be most useful for most leaders is to identify their own question have me talk to what I know and then engage in a dialogue. And, and my metric, by the way, was that the little Q&A section on the Zoom call had 19 really solid questions. And by the way, mm. a 45-minute time span, and each question got better and better. And what that told me was they not only got the idea, but they were working hard at figuring out how they apply it. And they were helping each mm-hmm. other in that process. And I, and they could see each other's questions, Right. Those are the courageous people who even shared their questions. There were private questions too. That to me is a metric because mm-hmm. it means that people are sitting there literally taking the paint out of your paint box that you've like, you know, been sitting here trying to create and they're painting on their wall. Here's how I'm going to go apply it. Oh yeah. I had this quote I heard you say that I wrote down. And I literally just wrote so much. Yes. Next to this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> now quote I totally was, want another quote. It, it was uh, that business is designed to automate us, not actualize us. Whew. Boy, that's good. I didn't even know I wrote that. That's really good. Yeah, good job. Good, good job earlier. You. Uh, <laughs> and I was just, I literally wrote so much yes in all caps. And I was like, yeah, you know, you talk about central questions. I think that's, that's become my central question, at least at this stage of my life is, is what is the role of business in creating and, and actualizing human potential and creating a fully alive world? Right. And I'm, I've become obsessed with that question. And it's, it's like a beautiful obsession and it's driving me a little bit crazy, but in a good way. Well, this is the work. Yeah. This is the work. And, and by the way, uh, you know, some of us have central questions that we work on all our lives and we never get to see the answer. Uh, but we, but it's a worthy question of our own pursuit and, uh, and, and people get to build on it over time. And so I, I think about it also as a lineage of how you contribute that, which only you can without owning the outcome and then knowing that that is good work and, and letting that be enough. Beautiful. I think that's like the perfect place to end what I, what I hope will be. I think this is going to be, a, I feel, I sense there's going to be a round two somewhere down the line here, but I think this is a beautiful place to, to wrap up for today. So, uh, first of all, thank you. Deep gratitude to, to you for the time and for sharing your, your, your lessons and just the generosity you've approached, not just this conversation, but all of your work with. Um, so thank you for that and for being that kind of person, um, and that kind of leader in the world. And what would you like to leave the audience with? Oh, well, so uh, we mentioned that uh, it's about having a question, right? And to really, as you exit this kind of podcast, to go, what is it I'm curious about, about myself, about the world, about my place in the world, about how I add value, whatever that question is, give yourself the time. It'll literally take a minute. And instead of rushing off that next thing to be productive, to let yourself own that question because once you start to shape a question, you get to also decide how you're going to grow. So let's leave with that. If I had a, if I, if I didn't need the mic, I'd drop it right now. On your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nilfer. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you so, so much. And uh, a true pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.